You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Hey everybody, my name is Scott O'Donohue. I'm one of the pastors of the Village Church that gathers in downtown Hamilton, Ohio. And today we are doing episode number 11 in a series of podcasts called Not Our Own. Uh, And it's actually named after a class uh, that we held in May of 2021 where we were hoping to cultivate clarity, compassion, and an evangelistic community through conversations about gender and sexuality. So if you've not listened to any of the other previous 10 episodes, I would encourage you to do that. Um, There's lots of kind of building blocks that uh, have allowed us to get where we are today in our conversation. Um, And also, if you are one of the folks who may have attended those classes in May, when we start talking about gender identity today, a couple things. One, uh, it's out of order. Uh, so we talked about gender identity at the end of our conversation around gender, and I flip-flopped uh, this with gender roles and gender expression um, because talking about biological sex like we did in the last episode, talking about gender identity today, um, these things together have a lot more to do with uh, with some of who we are that's received, not so much something that we actively uh, go out and do, whereas gender roles, gender expression, uh, that stuff kind of is our response to who we believe we are um, and how we're trying to express ourselves actively uh, as men or women, however we identify uh, ourselves. So I think it's helpful maybe to talk about uh, biological sex and gender identity first uh, before we talk about the the way that we express uh, our gender. So that's one reason. Also, if you were in the class, um, then you might hear some additional stuff that we didn't talk about that day. Um, it's such a big topic to have one hour devoted to talking about gender. Uh, we can skim the surface of a lot of things, but not go in the weeds. So one of the one of the benefits of having this uh, podcast is that we get to kind of chunk stuff out and maybe go into depth a little bit more. So you might hear some uh, some new things, even if you were in the class that that you didn't hear when we were all together. Uh, so hopefully this is helpful for you, whether you were in the class uh, or not. So I want to remind you all uh, kind of what gender identity is. Uh, we talked about definitions a couple episodes ago, but gender identity is one's internal sense of self as male, female, both, or neither. So that's what we're referring to when we talk about gender identity. Uh, Now, a few disclaimers before we just kind of get in the weeds and start talking about stuff. Uh, Gender identity is widely accepted as a hard and fast concrete reality that exists inside everybody. Uh, It is a core component of human gender according to our culture today. In fact, it's usually regarded as the kind of the preeminent identifier of which gender we really are, even over and above our biological sex. Uh, But the concept of gender identity, particularly one that's um, incongruent with our bodies, it's a difficult concept, if not almost impossible, for cisgender folks to understand on a personal or an experiential uh, level. So, uh, and by cisgender, I mean those of us who who don't experience any kind of incongruence between uh, what our body is in terms of male and female and who we believe ourselves to be, our internal sense of self as male, female, both or neither. We we have a congruence, they're aligned together. So we might have a, a hard time understanding that if you're cisgender like I am, even getting our heads around the fact that there is this, uh, maybe this, this uh, separate construct called gender 
identity. Um, heterosexual folks, um, man, they can get their heads around different sexual orientations or attractions because they experience orientation and attraction themselves in some way. Those components of sexuality are ones that they can look at and say, oh, yeah, I, I can get that because that's, that's what I experience. But when it comes to gender identity that doesn't, that doesn't align with our body, cisgender folks might find it next to impossible to even imagine what that might be like because their experience of their own maleness or their own femaleness might not just seem to include multiple parts, like a bodily component and some inner component. It just, it just kind of is what it is. Um, they just are what they are, more uh, male or female. There is no kind of separate parts that make that up. So those components of gender aren't uh, easily, as easily identifiable for cisgender folks. And maybe it's because there really are just two distinct parts of gender that when, uh, when aligned, don't make that distinction known. Or maybe it's because gender is meant to be one kind of unified, holistic kind of experience that when filtered through the fall becomes fractured in a way that makes gender seem like it's made of individual parts. And the reality is, like, we just don't know. Uh, science doesn't know. Psychology doesn't know. The scriptures um, that don't have these categories of thought, um, they only speak of male and female, men and women, um, and then they deal with some of the fallout of that in light of, in light of the fall. So there is not, uh, so far as humanity has yet discovered, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, uh, a part of ourselves that we can pull out uh, and we can look at or that we can observe under a microscope um, that we can point to and say, hey, that, that is my gender identity. Um, at, at best, we can kind of simply define it as an internal sense of self. And that doesn't mean that this internal sense of self isn't real. Um, I don't say all of that to invalidate what, what so many people can never deny as being a very real construct for them that stands in direct opposition or, uh, or overlaps uh, or, or like just doesn't align fully or, or whatever with their biological sex. So I have, I have no interest in debating whether or not gender identity is real, um, whether it exists by design in all of us or whether it's observed kind of only in the wake of fallen disorder or uh, misalignment. It is the pole that stands opposite of biological sex that leads people to not merely identify as transgender, but even for folks to experience genuine, like clinically diagnosable distress as gender dysphoria. Um, so I, I do want to talk about a couple of possibilities that are thrown out there for where gender identity comes from or how it's shaped, but uh, I'm doing so not to prove or disprove its existence, uh, but rather to try and help us grapple with like what its place should be as we try to figure out who we really are, uh, what we were meant to be, male or female, both, neither, uh, especially in comparison to our biological sex. Uh, before we move on, though, I, I just I do want to come back to cisgender folks like me. Um, I think our inability to to fully understand or even imagine what it means to identify as trans uh, or experience dysphoria, it should lead us to compassion uh, and not dismissal and not condemnation. Uh, we read several episodes ago now um, in Genesis that the the binary of of the sexes, of biological sex, male and female, that's literally one of the first most fundamental characteristics of what it means to be human. Um, and so if, if you take this to mean that God's intended design is like in pre-fall creation could, could more or less be described as cisgender in some way, then for someone to experience like a, a fault line running through their maleness or their femaleness, uh, one of the most fundamental parts of their humanity that, that isn't chosen but just simply passively received, that should move us to compassion above all things. 
And so you might be listening to this with a, a different perspective, and that's totally fine. Um, but no matter which way you slice it, gospel realities ought to soften the hearts of Christians towards others, especially that which they don't understand. All right. So that's my posture of heart going into this, uh, and I'll affirm that even at the end of this episode as well. So let's talk about some of the influences uh, or potential origins of kind of where gender identity uh, comes from. So the first thing is just kind of a, a physical influence, like a, a tangible biological reality. Um, there is no gender gene that's been discovered yet. Uh, just like Sexual orientation, uh, the, the gay gene, we kind of talked about that, you know, quote-unquote gay gene that we talked about in a previous episode. Um, there's, there's not been anything like that discovered yet. And if there were to be one discovered, it would not shake the foundations of our theology by any stretch of the imagination. Basic Christian doctrine accounts for things not being as they should on any and every level of reality, even genetically. Um, biologically, then, kind of the, the primary pr- place that we look to today um, is the brain. Uh, basically, what if someone has the body of one sex, but the brain of the other sex? Um, like a male brain and a female body, or a female brain and a male body. Kind of the brain being the, the center of cognition and thought and so much else in our body. This could physiologically account maybe for the, the psychological, the emotional, the mental experience of trans men and trans women with or without gender dysphoria. So a few things about kind of this idea that maybe the brain um, is where this comes from or shapes it in some unique way. Uh, Historically, kind of this is labeled as brain sex theory. Um, And and honestly, historically, this whole train of thought is is actually rooted in a ton of sexism um, in the scientific community uh, that that marked women as intellectually inferior, um, ill-equipped to hold public office because of like the size of brands, all sorts of stuff that's really weird. So there's a lot to weed through as you kind of look at the history of, uh, of this particular field of study. But that being the case, um, just because there's been some bias, some discrimination and prejudice brought into some of the, uh, the science done and the conclusions drawn from what's been found, doesn't mean that we should just toss it out entirely. We should look objectively uh, maybe at what's there. So, so that's just one thing you should know if you dive into this and are surprised by maybe some of the things that you find <laughs> that have been said in the past about the differences maybe between male and female brains. Just know that that's there um, and, and it might cause you to, need to weed through some of that stuff. Um, the first like big problem objectively when it comes to addressing this though is that uh, is that brains aren't, according to like data that we have, science that we have today, brains are not sexually dimorphic. Um, there simply aren't male and female brains like there is when it comes to sexual anatomy or chromosomes or our reproductive organs or what have you. There are some average differences between brains found in one sex versus the other, uh, like activity in certain parts of the brains, uh, average size, that kind of stuff. But these differences are, by and large, they're generalities. They are not absolutes. Um, and that's actually going to be a, a phrase or a thing that comes up a lot now this episode, but, but next episode uh, as well. Even in areas where there is some difference, some average differences, um, there is still significant overlap uh, between the sexes. So uh, some folks would like claim that they're um, like in utero, uh, when a, a baby is uh, in the womb, that there could be this wash of hormones um, that might actually influence 
uh, gender identity down the road. Uh, and this is most common um, when referring to like female babies, females in, uh, in utero that um, receive a, a wash of testosterone over them at some point. And this, this really happens for some folks during pregnancy. Um, and so the thought is maybe this in some way influences gender identity or those sorts of things uh, down the road later in development. So Penn State actually did a, a study, a long-term study, to try to see what the effects of uh, a, a testosterone wash like that, what effects that might actually have um, on females in the uterus. And so uh, what they did, um, or what they found rather, is that there were some statistically significant effects when it came to um, later engagement in gendered activities. So stereotypical activities that uh, men or women, girls, boys might uh, might participate in. There were some effects uh, in terms of those girls ended up participating maybe more in what are generally considered more quote-unquote boy-ish activities. Um, so there were some statistically significant effects there. Um, there were a, a little bit of effects when it comes to spatial ability, spatial awareness. Usually that's a thing that uh, males are kind of more versed in, uh, in, in their heads, uh, is like spatial awareness, spatial ability, 3D stuff. But... Um, yeah, but, but females, there was a little bit of effect there, kind of moved the needle just a, a little bit on that. Um, but there was little to no effect on future gender identity stuff, gender cognition, peer development, um, any of those things at all. So statistically insignificant uh, when it came to gender identity. Uh, and even looking at things like like gendered activities and all that stuff, we're talking about things that, that historically, for example, would have caused a girl to be considered more of like a, a tomboy. So not even necessarily talking about gender identity stuff, but just just do they fit into the stereotypical boy or girl. That's just, just It's just based on cultural stereotypes of what girls and what boys are quote unquote supposed to do or supposed to wear or supposed to sound like. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, a lot of that stuff is just largely rooted in cultural stereotypes. And so we'll talk more about this in the next episode. Uh, but by and large, just know that like this kind of like hormone wash, testosterone wash in utero, um, it, it did not, as far as we have uh, observed yet, it, it does not actually produce any statistically significant effects on future um, gender identity. So also, um, our brains are elastic. Uh, and this is kind of the, the second issue that arrives. Um, as much as they might, our brains might affect our relationship with the world around us, the world around us affects them. Uh, this is called neuroplasticity, and it's a it's a beautiful thing. Um, our, our brains, it can they can learn and they can grow and be shaped in different ways over time uh, by our uh, by our experiences. But it can also be a, a painful thing. Um, it can very much be shaped by by bad experiences, by trauma and other life events. But but the hope then is that still even our brains remain elastic in a way that can relearn and be retrained uh, back into health over time. So our brains can shape the way that we experience the world around us and our experiences in the world around us can also shape our brains. Um, so this biological reality, it, it introduces a bit of a chicken or the egg problem for us. Do, do average differences between male and female brains exist because they're that way from the beginning? Or are those average differences created over time because males and females are encouraged to have different experiences um, rooted in gender stereotypes that uh, the way that they're raised put in quote-unquote gendered activities like uh, the study put it, um, that kind of stuff. Are their differences a result of nature or are those average differences a result of nurture? 
Um, so the, the biological reality of neuroplasticity, uh, the fact that our experiences do shape our brains, it means that the answer to this question, at the very least, has to at least make room for nurture to be a factor. Um, nurture does have some impact on the way that our brains are, even if nature does too. So without being explicitly sexually dimorphic and with being elastic, our brain differences aren't this totally reliable, foolproof way for us to determine uh, some objective, by design, intended gender identity, especially compared to our, our biological sex, which, which is sexually dimorphic and rooted in objective, observable realities for 99.9% .9 of people, all right? So that is that kind of topic, looking at the brain. But, hey, like, we're, we're Christians, or at least I am, and I think most of the people listening to this are Christians, and so for us, there is obviously more to this world than what's merely observable um, or what's scientifically measurable or repeatable, right? Like, we, we believe in the supernatural, the spiritual, uh, the immaterial. So that leads us to considering maybe some non-material influences or origins uh, as it relates to gender identity. Uh, as Christians, we believe in both the material and the immaterial world, the, the physical stuff, tangible realities, as well as spiritual, non-physical realities. We believe in the body and the soul, uh, heaven and earth, spiritual beings and physical ones. This uh, combination of both material and immaterial stuff is, is fundamental to our, our Christian theology. So maybe uh, this internal sense of self that we have, which is by default, uh, at least at this point in time, only an immaterial reality. Um, it's, it's not definitively tied to anything biological or physical that we know of. Um, maybe this internal sense of self actually really jives with a Christian worldview that doesn't only make room for immaterial parts of us, but that values that part of ourselves as well. Maybe, uh, so the theory goes, you can have the body of one sex and the soul of the other, or some other combination. Instead of a, a male brain inside of a female body, maybe you could have a male soul inside of a, a female body. So th this is another popular way of trying to understand the source of gender identity. Um, and, and it sounds plausible in a, in a Christian worldview. Uh, but before we just start talking about that stuff, let's, let's, let's talk about the biblical relationship between the body and the soul, uh, the immaterial and the material parts of ourselves. Because there's a, there's a ton of assumptions that I think all of us bring into this particular topic. Um, and if we're going to be thoughtful and careful and biblical, then we need to make sure that we're on the same page as we're talking about this stuff. So there is a spectrum of relationship between body uh, and soul. Uh, lots of ways you can understand this. There, I'm going to give uh, four, but these first two, these are two that I think conflict with Scripture, um, kind of on the surface, on the nose. Uh, the first kind of relationship between body and soul that we could have is uh, what's called physicalism. Um, it's the belief that everything about humanity is only material or merely the, the product of material physical stuff. So biology, cells, hormones, that, that's the only real stuff. There is no like immaterial part of ourselves. Any conception of a, a spiritual world or any experience that we might call spiritual, that's really just the way that we've interpreted like neurons firing off in our brain. So the spiritual world isn't really there. Uh, the immaterial world isn't really there. We just think that it is. So that's, uh, that's one, um, one way of describing our relationship between body and soul is this physicalism. 
uh, stuff. On, on the opposite end of the spectrum is spiritualism or uh, what some folks might call like a strong dualism. It's the belief that body and soul are distinct parts of people, but the soul or our spirit, that's really who we are. So our, our soul is basically like just trapped in our body like a bird in a cage. Um, you really are a soul who happens to have a body. Um, and this, this perspective like denigrates the physical body um, or the material world. It, it ignores the fact that God created things physically, <laughs> uh, embodied and sexed and image and all those things. And, and it's like that he's going to recreate everything physical as well. Like he's going to renew everything, new heavens and new earth. And so this position, honestly, it, it actually has a, it's, it's a lot more popular than you would think in Christianity. Um, but it's really rooted more in Western philosophy than it is the scriptures. Um, for, for example, you don't really hear anybody in the scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament, hammer on and on about what happens after we die. Like what, what happens to our souls after we die. That, that is not a pressing question for them. The things that they're concerned with are things like the coming kingdom or the resurrection or the final state of all things that isn't simply like floating around in the clouds like a, a chubby baby angel, uh, like playing the harp and all that stuff. But, but they're looking at new bodies, new creation, where heaven and earth uh, are going to be reconciled. They're going to be together again. So it, for them, it wasn't about escaping the physical to get to the spiritual. It was about getting the physical and the spiritual, that the heaven and the earth, God and his people back together again. So they understood that there was a material and immaterial side of reality, uh, but the way they talked and lived and, and hoped pointed towards a worldview that most often included both together. Um, whereas today, I think many of us, we're, we're prone to treating them separately. Um, we emphasize that this, that this isn't our home, that we do, we, we do fixate on what happens after we die. We do often look to heaven as like a, a final resting place or an escape from this world, even uh, justice, creation care, all that stuff. Many of us downplay the stuff here and now the physical stuff because we have a, a worldview that separates and honestly elevates uh, the spiritual to a, a higher place than the physical in some way. So so that's like a uh, just a bit of a description and going in a little bit on this idea of spiritualism or strong dualism. So again, these are kind of on two opposite ends of the spectrum, physicalism and spiritualism. And I would say both of these, like neither one of them really fit nicely into a Christian worldview. Physicalism certainly doesn't. Um, spiritualism uh, certainly is more prominent in Christian culture uh, than I would like it to be. Um, but it, man, it, it doesn't really fit with the way that the scriptures speak about both the physical and the spiritual. So I, I kind of leave those off to the side. Um, and, and I would like to talk about then like the, the next two uh, relationships between the physical and uh, the non-physical, the material and the immaterial that, that I think are uh, in line with the scriptures that you can see uh, in the Bible. The first is this. Uh, it's called non-reductive dualism. So um, the body and the soul are distinct, but they're inseparable. Uh, you can't have one without the other. A person can't be without both. Um, we can't be reduced down to either our body uh, or our soul, hence the name, non-reductive dualism. Uh, practically, um, you might think like, yeah, what, how does this play out? Practically, uh, one of the things that, that shows up um, from this line of thought is, is those who believe that after we die, uh, we experience soul sleep. Uh, that might be a thing you've heard of before, maybe not, where we're basically asleep in some way after we die until the resurrection uh, because we can't be consciously alive apart from our bodies. So 
So that is one category that I, that I think we can see uh, in the scriptures, this non-reductive dualism. Body and soul are distinct, but inseparable. Uh, the other thing uh, that I think is, it lines up with the scriptures is called soft dualism. So uh, the body and soul are distinct in this view, uh, but they are separable. So they're alike. Uh, they're kind of like non-reductive dualism in the sense that the body and soul are distinct, but in soft dualism, they are able to be separated in some way. We can be, uh, like Paul talks about in uh, the New Testament, we can be absent from the body uh, and yet present with the Lord in some way. Uh, these are these are both biblically solid positions, and they both affirm uh, that the body and the soul are both distinct, that they're both fundamental to who we are. They don't pit one against the other or elevate one over the other. Whether or not they can be separated, we really we really aren't who or how we were meant to be without having both of them present. Uh, it, it is definitely a more holistic view of personhood. So here's what the scriptures say about the soul and spirit uh, specifically. The Kind of the way that they, uh, from a, a big picture point of view, the way that they even look at this immaterial part of ourselves. Uh, in the Old Testament, you might see, uh, you'll see two Hebrew words largely, ruach and nefesh, um, that refer to the spirit uh, or soul, life, breath, inner person. Um, and then psyche uh, in the New Testament refers to, to this category of stuff, soul, life, breath, inner person, desire. Um, often these things together kind of often used in a way that refers to a person's like total nature, the seat of their desires, ultimate emotions, or their ultimate drives and ambitions. Um, in fact, many, many, many times, especially in the Old Testament, um, these words are just, a, they're another way of talking about people. So instead of just saying me, I'll say my soul. And it, it emphasizes not just my bodily life, um, but kind of all of me, my emotions, my uh, mental stuff, all of that. It, it's just a way of describing the totality of my personhood. Uh, and so in this way, soul and spirit are often very much intertwined or interconnected with uh, our physicality uh, in some way. We don't see inner wars kind of being waged between our body and our soul in Scripture uh, like we see between our flesh and and the spirit. That, that is an entirely different kind of battle uh, between our sin and the spirit, our suffering and our unbelief, our unholiness and the Lord's holiness. That's, that is not about dualism, uh, the, the dualism of our body and our soul going to war over who we are, um, but about who we are and who God is and the differences between us that creates that friction and that conviction. So, so the common groundwork uh, that I'm trying to lay here is, is this, that bodies and souls alike are distinct, uh, but, but they're also equally fundamental aspects of who we are. And, and the internal wrestling uh, that we see described in the scriptures, it's not a war between our bodies and our souls. Uh, the body we're trapped in and who we really are on the inside, it is, it's our body and our soul holistically together at war with either our flesh and our sin or with the enemy or at times even with the Lord himself. And so with all of that, um, I just want to come back to the conversation at hand. Uh, the, the idea that, that we can have the body of one sex and the soul of another requires at least some kind of dualism, right, that, that we have described here, that there exist material and immaterial parts of ourselves that are distinct. Um, but, but I think it also requires two other things. One, that our souls can even be gendered in the first place, uh, and two, that, that we could possibly know the gender of our souls. 
Um, and additionally, if, if we want to evaluate or, uh, or rather elevate our, our gendered souls above our biological sex, then we either have to uh, adopt the assumption that our souls are who we really are, um, despite how unambiguously and objectively sexed our bodies might be, or it requires us to demonstrate in some way that, that unambiguously sexed bodies are somehow less reliable or more likely uh, the disorder received than, than our inner sense of self, than our, our gendered soul. So uh, let's work through these a bit and then we'll, we'll close up shop for the day because I know this is a lot to think through. Um, first point, our souls can't be biologically sexed the way that our bodies can. All right, so, so biological sex is a physical, material reality, and our souls are immaterial. So we can't say that our souls are biologically sexed the same way that our bodies are. Um, and maybe most folks wouldn't say that. I, I think lots of folks don't confuse these things, but it, it is worth acknowledging, especially for those of us who can slip into using biological sex and gender identity interchangeably, uh, especially when assumptions are at play and, and we feel strongly about an argument or whatever. We just have to acknowledge like those are two very separate things, apples uh, and oranges. So our souls can't be biologically sexed the way that our bodies can. And number two, our souls aren't described in gendered ways in the scriptures, even as it relates to uh, an immaterial gender identity that the scriptures don't speak of our souls as having any bent towards manhood or womanhood in and of themselves. Um, let alone do they describe our, our souls as standing in conflict or in opposition with the sex of our bodies or our, our physicality in any way. Um, the scripture's use of soul or spirit isn't afraid to include our physicality in places, but it doesn't assume that those attributes spring from anything other than the body itself. Even in Song of Solomon, um, folks might, might see this or read this or go here, uh, over and over talks about the one whom my soul loves uh, in the Song of Solomon. So the soul is like desiring this, this other person, a, uh, a woman desiring after her beloved. Uh, even if there is a, a physical longing attributed to, to that, what we see in the Song of Solomon, that is about sexuality. Um, that, that is not about gender. Um, and... It aligns with the consistent usage of, of soul as the seat of one's ultimate desires or ambitions. It's not just a, she's not just talking about some lustful, purely physical desire being described. Like that's not what's going on here. Um, that, that's then being just attributed to the soul. It's this whole person, physical, emotional, uh, mental, spiritual longing for her beloved. Um, so, so that has like nothing to do with souls being gendered uh, unless we want to hitch sexuality and gender back together in some way that actually assumes the, the heterosexuality of the soul um, because that's what's in view in, in Song of Solomon. You'd have to assume the heterosexuality of the soul to make that argument. Um, and my guess is that lots of folks wouldn't want to do that. So, so the soul can't be sexed biologically and the soul, biblically, biblically speaking, um, isn't, as far as we see anywhere, uniquely gendered uh, in, in any way that we can tell. Uh, but even if it was, how would we know? Um, I'm not denying that gender identity, as so many people experience it, I'm not denying that that's a thing uh, by any stretch of the imagination, nor am I saying that, uh, that our souls, that the immaterial part of ourselves, I'm not saying that, that those can't be ordered or disordered in a way that contributes to the incongruence or, or the discomfort between our biological sex and our internal sense of self. Like I'm, I'm not denying that stuff at all. I'm simply asking that if it's something that, that emanates from or is rooted in our soul, how would we know that? 
Like what, what measures or markers would we use to make that declaration that, that don't lean on gender stereotypes or tendencies or interests or just, just the statement that this is who you are or how you see yourself on the inside? And that's, it sounds like an unfair question and, and it would be uh, if I were asking people to validate their transgender identity or their experience because you simply, you, you can't prove an immaterial reality with material measures. You just, you can't do that. But I'm not asking folks to, to validate their identity or validate their experience. I'm just asking all of us to evaluate what might lead us to be more confident in our internal sense of self than what is, for most people, the, the unambiguous objective reality of biological sex. I'm not saying that the physical world is more real than the immaterial one or that the, the stuff that goes on inside of us is any less important or real than the stuff that happens outside of us. I, I would reject that notion. But I would also reject the opposite of that too, that, that by default, our inner sense of self, our soul, our mind, whatever you want to call it or whatever, whatever you want to attribute it to, I would reject that that part of ourselves is by nature more important or more real or more of who we just really are than the physical one. Uh, Christians shouldn't adopt the assumption that our souls are who we really are, especially when it conflicts with the objectively true physical realities that are at play. Um, this conflicts not only with, with the scripture's vision of what it means to be human, but it also asks us to sweep physical realities under the rug. Or when it comes to hormonal and surgical transitioning, we're actually like asking it to, to even to try to change those physical realities to align with our immaterial ones. And when our biological sex is, is unambiguous and objectively verifiable, like I'm not sure on what biblical grounds or scientific grounds or otherwise we could say that it, that it is uh, our biological sex that's been most affected by the disorder that we've received and, and not our inner sense of self. And so once again, I just want to make it very clear that I'm not in any way saying that there's, there's not an immaterial part of ourselves that plays into the way that we experience our manhood and womanhood. That, that is more than likely true for all of us, even us cisgender folks who are probably unaware of such a thing, at least to the extent that trans folks might be. I'm, I'm simply talking about the relationship between the material and the immaterial, between our mind and body, our body and soul, what makes us who we are, and what, what determines whether we're male or female, a man or a woman. Um, if, if we're going to pin down which one gets some sort of final say, over how we identify or how we express ourselves, um, then, then I'm led to say that our biological sex gets that, our, our biological sex does, for all the things, all the reasons that we talked about here in this episode. And that's, that is not an easy answer, uh, not because it's not clear and simple, but because saying that to people face-to-face -face or, or whoever's going to stumble upon this on the internet, that's going to hit uh, people differently. And so for those who are trans or who, who do experience gender dysphoria, like the implications of, of that, of me saying that, uh, that declaration are, are wide and varied and huge and hard. And so as a church, um, for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who call the village home, we, we need to recognize that and we need to be willing to bear with people through that and be a source of life and encouragement and hope and help. These are, as we've talked about thus far, these are things that we've received, that, that we receive Right? We, we don't give ourselves our biological sex, whether it's ambiguous or unambiguous. We don't give ourselves this internal sense of self or, or the agreement between those two things. Those are things that we receive. And so like we're on the hook for what we do in light of those things. Absolutely. Uh, that's on all of us. But for those in the church, what we do with what we have received, not just 
biological sex, not just our inner sense of self, but but the gospel and the truth and, and the Holy Spirit, all that stuff, and what we do with who we've received, our neighbors, church members, what have you, like we're on the hook for that. And, and our witness to Jesus and his patience and grace and mercy to us, we're on the hook for the way that we, we respond to those things and care for those people. And so uh, with that said, like I know that's a, that, that was a big thing to talk about today. And I know landing in a place that might create lots more questions, confusion, even hurt and hardship uh, for some of you listening to this. But um, I hope that was helpful in some way. Um, as I've said uh, in, in many episodes, feel free to reach out, info at myvillagechurch.com. Um, you can email me. I would love to hear your questions or talk with you about stuff. Um, and, and next time, uh, we'll get into gender roles, gender expression, and talk about uh, some of the, like, what do we make then of, of how we are then to live as men and women? How do we express ourselves? So with that, uh, thanks so much for listening. Hope this was helpful, uh, and we'll see you in the next one.